Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to Medieval Lols, a new close reading series from the London Review of Books. I'm Mary Wellesley. And I'm Irina Dumitrescu. And we are both writers, literary historians, and contributors to the paper. In this series, we are asking, was the Middle Ages funny? And more importantly, is it still funny? And today, we're talking about a thousand-year-old Latin textbook with scenes of riotous disobedience that will teach you how to swear like a sailor or even better, like a monk. Expect sons of demons, foxtails, and cat turds. We are, of course, talking about the colloquies of Alfred Barter. So, Irina, can you give us a bit of background? When was this written? By whom? Uh, and, and what, indeed, is a colloquy? Good question. So, you know, you said, of course, but this is actually a text that very few people know. Um, we think it was written around the year 1000 and almost certainly in a monastery. We don't know who Alfred Bada was. We know a lot more about Alfred, the 10th century English churchman who wrote homilies and saints' lives and so on. But like a lot of early English churchmen, he was also involved in teaching Latin uh, to pupils or you know, composing materials for the teaching of Latin. So Alfred, not our author today, but the, more, the better known uh, churchman, wrote a grammar of Latin in the English language. It's the first grammar of Latin and English. He wrote a glossary um, of various Latin terms with their translations into English. And he wrote a colloquy, which is a fancy way of saying a dialogue. And the dialogue is between various figures, like a hunter, cook, baker, and so on. There's a master, there are pupils. And we think that it was a way for uh, students in the monastery to learn how to speak Latin. Because, of course, Latin for them was not just a language that you read, but it was a Latin that you, you speak in here as well. It's an in, it was an international language, if you, th- if you think of it that way. So this is it's kind of like those bits in the textbooks we had at school where you have to practice your French and uh, ask the way to the town hall. So this is the kind of 10th century equivalent of that, right? Yeah, though Alfred less so. Al- Alfred's uh, colloquy is really kind of about getting monastic students to think about all the different jobs they could do in life and ultimately be happy with what they are, which is monks. So it's not very practical. It's more like an ideological document. So that exists in three manuscript copies, and it's you know slightly altered depending on which one. One of these, by the way, has glosses in Old English. And in the modern period, those glosses have been used to make an Old English version of the colloquy, which a lot of teachers of Old English use with their classes. It was one of the first things I remember learning to read, and I've used it with my own students as well. Okay, so we have Alfred's colloquy, which a lot of people know if they've if they've had some encounter with Old English. But then comes in Alfred Bada, and we don't know very much about him except that he seems to have 
maybe studied under or being inspired by Alfredge. Maybe that's why he also takes on this name. And we know that he worked over at least one manuscript version of Alfredge's colloquy. And he writes his own version. And his own version really is more like those phrase books. It's different situations in the monastic life and what one might say in them. And it's it's longer. Um, again, it's in Latin. It's not necessarily the best Latin, but that's not so important. And it just has a lot of different elements and a lot of different scenes from monastic life, like going to the bathroom or eating and drinking or being in the schoolroom and, you know, arguing over school materials or supplies. Um, so this is the kind that we're really dealing with a textbook, but it's a very lively and dramatic textbook. And I think it was probably meant to be performed in some in some way in the classroom. But I'm interested in how this text was was actually kind of used in the classroom. I mean, was it that this was a text that students would memorize and then they would take each of the kind of speaking parts within the colloquy and and, and kind of say it to each other? Or was it envisaged as you know, the teacher would say one bit and then the student would respond. I mean, or do do we not even know the answer to that? We don't really know. I think it's what we do know is that it's extremely unlikely that each one had a copy of the book, right? So probably they would not have been reading it the way we read it all, you know, from the beginning to the end, um, which is why it's hard to talk about it having a plot, really. You know, it does have a bit of a, a an arc, a story arc in the sense that, the first scenes are very quotidian, and then there are kind of troubling elements that start to pop up all the way through uh, until near the end, we have a, a spectacular beating of an apple thief, which we will come to again. But all along, there are fights between the boys, there are arguments, there seem to be older pupils and younger ones. So some of the characters are teenagers and some of them are younger. There are older monks and younger monks. Um, so it's not a dialogue, you know, between two people. It's it's really like a, a play, but we don't we don't know who's speaking at any given time. That's not marked um, in the manuscript. And I think, you know, I have no way of proving this, but I suspect that the master also might have taken on some roles. And I think it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have sometimes also taken the roles of the kids and had the kids play the more authoritative figures. I mean, it's playful like that. And then at the end of the whole collection of colloquies, we have a kind of long sermon in the voice of the master that basically tells the boys to be good Christians and to look at people behaving badly and look at people behaving well and figure out what's good behavior to imitate. And that's the conclusion. But the kids probably would have gotten this a few lines at a time. They might have scratched them onto a wax tablet and then memorized them a few lines at a time. They might have improvised or changed it, right? It's not like a modern play in the sense that you, you're necessarily supposed to deliver it verbatim. It's really more like a textbook where you might say, yo no hablo inglés, yo no hablo francés, you know, you're sort of varying things and choosing different phrases and playing with them. I think that's probably the way it was used. So we might think of it as a menu, right? Like a conversation mm. menu. It's kind of wonderful the way it's it's also this amazing window into the social life of the monastery. Um, and clearly, you know, parts of the text are designed as much for, you know, the, the grammatical aspects of it. Um, you know, there's kind of sh shifts in tense and um, sort of uses of, of 
you know, use of the imperative, for example, or something like that within a, within a sentence. So it's kind of almost helping the students to sort of get get a feel for the language and and the way it works. Um, and there's also also this kind of wonderful uh, vocabulary. So there's a whole bit about the what plants grow in the garden of the monastery and we have all of these words in this very long list and it's it's clearly just a way of learning the vocab but so so what can you give us a bit of a sense of what what the experience of of reading this text is like or performing yes or performing it well i mean i think so let me take a step back and say in People used to think that this was a, a transparent window into monastic life, and there certainly are moments in this. You know, we, we see kids talking about bathing, or the characters talking about taking a bath, um, or or the punishment of the apple thief who's who's you know beaten with rods in front of everyone until until he he weeps and apologizes, or even just these everyday scenes in the classroom. Those moments really do seem like this is this is what a tenth or eleventh century monastery is like. But then, you know, in those lists of plants and trees, there are things that one wouldn't have in England, right? Because actually, those lists come from glossaries. They come from Alfred's glossary, in fact. Um, and they do, you know, sometimes they talk about each owning a book which they can't have done. And here's the more important part: whenever Bada can make something negative or dramatic, he does it. This is the trick. This is what makes it so unlike modern language teaching. I think a lot of modern textbooks are kind of a bit anodyne. You know, you're going to the train station, you're meeting at the party, you're asking these extremely boring questions. Can you tell me the way to the town hall? (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) Donde esta la biblioteca, right? I mean, this is, and I mean, they're kind of hilariously bad because you don't remember that stuff. I think Alfred Spada knew that kids tend, or anyone really, tends to remember highly dramatic and negative material. So the kids don't tend to say, I have a book, I have a quill, I have a knife. They say, I don't have one of these. Lend me yours. Give me yours. I won't lend you mine. You always take things and you don't give them back, right? So they're often arguing. They're, uh, you know, If you were to believe this is true, those kids would have been at each other's throats all the time. Um, and they wouldn't have had anything. You know, They complain about not having enough clothes, about not having enough supplies. And I think that's not necessarily because that's what the Kate, what was happening in his monastery. I think the point was, you remember things more when they are imbued with emotion, you know, especially negative emotion. So as an example, um, I think, you know, there's this fantastic speech. It's not even really much of a colloquy in the modern edition by Scott Gore and David Porter. It's colloquy 14, where a teacher or maybe one figure asks, where do you want to go now? Or what do you want to do? Or what are you doing? Quo vis ire modo aut quid vis facere? Out quid facis, right? So, some options for how to say the same, the same thing. That's very actually very modern in terms of its language pedagogy. And I'll just I'll read the English out loud first, and then the Latin for this. Not even the whole thing. The next speaker replies, "I'm not doing anything wrong. I did nothing. I have done nothing. I will do nothing that might be wrong. God willing, this one is doing nothing wrong. Nor did he." nor has he done any wrong, nor wishes to do. No evil is he doing, nor did he, nor has he done, nor wishes to do. We are doing nothing wrong, nor did we. Nothing wrong have we done, nor will we do anything we shouldn't, and so on. So in Latin, Nihil mali facio, nihil feci, nihil habeo factum, 
nihil facere volo, quod malum sit, si Deus vult. Nullum malum facit iste, nec fecit, nec factum habet ulum malum, nec facere vult. Nullum malum facit ile, nec fecit, nec factum habet, nec agere vult. Nihil mali facimus, nec fecimus, nihil habemus factum, nihil facere volumus, quod nobis nos oportet. So you can imagine how this would be played up, how it might be kind of a, maybe a task for a better pupil to memorize the whole thing and actually sort of render it without stumbling. It's also kind of training and pronouncing the words properly so that you can hear the word endings um, of the conjugations. But, you know, I think this is very typical Alfred Bada. It's like, can we make it something ridiculous? Can we push it up to 11? But I think we haven't we haven't really given listeners enough of a sense of of quite how funny this text is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary, this is a question I have because I think sometimes it's obviously funny. I think that sort of, you know, I've done nothing wrong passage is supposed to be ridiculous. And and if done dramatically would have been hilarious in, in that context. Other scenes, I'm not so sure. You know, there is a scene with an older monk who pesters a younger monk to eat and drink. And the younger monk keeps saying, well, I'm full. I can't, I just can't eat anymore. I swear, brother, you know, there's just nothing more I can eat. And the older monk just keeps telling him to eat, 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 drink. Now, I used to read that in a kind of creepy way. I thought it was a way that the older monk is is maybe trying to get the younger one drunk or pressuring him to do something he doesn't want to do. Um, so I, I didn't used to read it as as very funny at all. This last time I was reading it, I was thinking to you know, a skit on goodness gracious me of the mother who forces her family to eat to the point of illness and eventually pulls out a gun so that they will keep eating the samosas that she's made. And of course, I've had experiences like that in my family, right? And I started to think maybe this is just the guy who keeps making everybody eat to the point where it's absolutely ridiculous. Nobody wants to eat anymore, but he's going to wheedle them into it. So I, I think... There are scenes like like that where it's really a matter of perspective, whether it's funny or not. And it's kind of what, how you come to the text and what you imagine when you're coming to it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you find it funny, Mary? Yeah, I mean, there are some really wonderful bits. What I most love about this text is um, the way it has taught me how to insult people in Anglo-Latin. I think we should maybe, I think we should go to that bit in the text and we should read it aloud. All right. This is near the end of the colloquies. Things have gotten more dramatic. There are more fights. The fights are longer and and more vicious. And basically one speaker accuses another boy or really a young man um, of being a kind of fox who goes around everywhere, causes trouble. Uh, He says, no demon is worse than a son of discord and a murmur among harmonious and peaceful people. The young man, the teenager, defends himself, and then who knows if this is the same speaker or the first one. We get um, a very educational vocabulary lesson, which I think we should read in, in Latin first. Tu socors, 
tuscibalum hedi, tuscibalum ovis, tuscibalum equi, tufimum svobi, tufimus bovis, tu stercus porci, tu homini stercus, tu canis cibalum, tu vulpis cibalum, tu moripicipis <laughs> stercus, tu galine stercus, tu asinis cibalum, tu vulpicule omnium vulpiculorum, tu vulpis cauda, tu vulpis barba, tu nebris vulpiculi, tu vecors et semicors, tu scura, quid vis habere ad me, nihil boni autumo. So, in English, that's, you idiot, you goat shit, sheep shit, horse shit, you cow dung, you pig turd, you hum- human turd, you dog shit, fox shit, cat turd, chicken shit, you ass turd, you fox cub of all fox cubs, you fox tail, you fox beard, you skin of a fox cub, you idiot and halfwit, you buffoon, what would you have for me? Nothing good, I think. It's so great, that bit. And there's also some little kind of resonances in there that you might not necessarily pick up as a as a modern reader. So the fox tail is often associated with with sex and there's a there's a little um plate, I mean, admittedly from a later period, but I think from the fifteenth century in the, the collection of the of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which shows um as a sort of inversion of the normal power dynamic, it shows a a wife, um, a woman, well, she's wearing a, a headdress, which indicates that she's a married woman, and she's riding on the back of a man who has bare buttocks, and she's beating him with a foxtail. Um, and it's very much the kind of inversion of the natural power order, right? And the and the the kind of comedy of that. But I think that's you know that's those are a lot of that's a lot of what this text is doing. It's it's playing with the idea of of topsy turvy authority and what happens when. When the, perhaps the boys might have more power than the than the people in in authority. Yeah, and I, I mean, I th- I think this is um, this is a great scene because you can imagine that um, whoever practiced that would know that vocabulary mm. very well by the yeah. end. And I remember, you know, being a child, we often on the playground taught each other swear words. Right? I I was in a very multicultural part of part of the world, and that's what we taught each other how to swear in our respective languages. So it's often the first thing kids want to know from a a, a foreign language, and. I imagine that in a lot of a lot of the time they didn't get that um, in a monastic context. But Alfred Bada, either because he was a rogue or because he was a very good language pedagogue, he gave them that, you know, and he and they would then remember the word for fox or the word for turd and all the various animal names, right? Because it's also talking about the turd of each one. So it's a, a sneaky way of of bringing in those animals. So you learn them too, and it's bringing in the genitive and you know the dative. Exactly. And I mean, it's 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 grammatically very useful as well. Absolutely. So I think you know that's, and then who knows who said that? Maybe it was a really little kid, and it would have just been a blast to hear this child saying this because it's actually kind of basic in terms of its grammar. Um, or maybe it was the teacher, and that was funny too, right? So I think there are possibilities for this. Um, I mean, I'm sure this part was funny. I can't imagine that it, it wasn't. Or, you know, there are other parts where they're clearly in jokes based on having learned the grammar. Mm. So there's a passage that takes place earlier during a drinking party um, when one of the speakers takes on takes the horn, the drinking horn, and 
basically goes on a kind of drunken tirade. I want to drink from the horn. I ought to have the horn to hold the horn. I'm called horn. Horn is my name. I want to live with the horn, to lie with the horn, and to sleep, to sail, ride, walk, work, and play with the horn. And it goes on like that for a while. And what's the joke? The joke is that corno or horn is, um, you know, is a kind of odd word because most of its forms are invariant. They're all corno. So they're playing on something that they probably would have learned um, in their grammar lessons, that this is a particularly strange word that doesn't show where it sits in the sentence um, in its ending, because it's always corno. But they're doing that with this over-the-top repetition in the mouth of a drunken figure who's gone nuts talking about the, the horn. I agree that that whole section about corno is... Is very much, you know, it's chosen because because of the grammar and it's and it's it's a useful way of of learning this kind of interesting feature of the word. But I also think that you know you really get a sense that Alfred Barter is, is having a lot of fun with this. Um, he in, in the passage that we were talking about earlier with uh, the cat turds and the chicken shit. There's this great bit just afterwards when that the insults continue and one of the boys says shall i read the latin yeah, yeah. okay ego vellum et totus essus cacatus et minctus pro his omnibus verbis tuis habetus stercus in mento tue habe scribalum in barba tua et in ore tu circus et scribalum tria et dua octo et unum et ego nullum habeto semper. Modo verba tua verum manifestant quod unus mimus et unus sotus as et incipiens et fatuus. Which in, in the English is, I would like you to be totally beshat and bepissed for all these words of yours. Have shit in your mouth. May you always have shit in your beard and shit and turds in your mouth. Three and two times, and eight, and one, and I, none at all ever. Now your words reveal the truth, that you are a buffoon, and a fool, and a silly blabbermouth. But what I love about that bit is the way, uh, is this kind of, this idea of the words having, taking on this kind of quality, the scatological quality, that the words become kind of turds in the mouth. And it, there's something Alfred is drawing attention to the sort of, in some ways, the silliness of this whole text in itself. It's it's all about words and learning words and 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 getting them in your mouth and getting the taste of them in your mouth. And and yet it's this kind of wonderful insult about about being. I mean, it's the most sort of extreme way of saying that that what you say is shit. Absolutely, you know, I I think the thing about Alfred Spada is he was writing for little for boys, and. I, you know, we asked if this is funny. Um, maybe the the point is not so much is it funny to modern people the way it is to medieval people, but is it funny to adults the way it would be to to children? And children happen to find farts and poop extremely hilarious, extremely, extremely funny. And I, and I think this is what he, he knew. And there, are, you know, there are also little serious colloquies, little serious moments. There's there, there's a scene where somebody who is not as good of a reader wants help reading the Bible and asks for 
assistance in interpreting the mysteries of the Bible. So you know he's working he's working towards getting them to have good good enough Latin to analyze the Bible in a in a really literate smart way. Um, there's another you know scene in which they talk about an older monk and how he he's now blind and can't you know can't really participate in monastic life much anymore but once upon a time he taught others and he and he wrote many books and so on right so there is a sense of monastic religious life but in these colloquies it's mainly in the background and it's more, it's they're really pitched to kids and he actually or I should say the master in the colloquies who's sounds a little like he's the, you know maybe speaking for Alfred Bada talks about mixing serious words with joking ones because that's what little boys like right so it's very much you know this is this is a text for an audience and it's for the kids who maybe will forget the the parts with you know that are more serious but will definitely remember how to fight and how to argue with each other and how to accuse each other of theft and of getting, you know, at one point they they say, you know, you always get us in trouble when the master is not around. So in a sense, they also kind of learn how to police each other and complain. But again, children hate unfairness. They can't stand unfairness. It's really tough on them when when they feel that another child is getting them in trouble. Well, the kids in, who, who learned from Bada would have had the vocabulary to talk about that. So it's kind of a funny text because they would have had, they would have actually had a really rich vocabulary in Latin eventually. Um, that wouldn't have been just the book Latin. It would have been one where they could cuss each other out in the schoolyard. I think it's kind of brilliant. Irina, we should, however, really convey to the listeners that there are some parts of this text that are quite troubling to read and and do send a bit of a shudder down the spine. Yes, there are a few scenes where an older monk asks a younger monk to kiss him or to help in the, in the bathroom. That's kind of easy to overlook, but it was very much against the rules at the time. You know, authors of monastic um, customaries were very worried about sexual abuse, especially of, of the kids. So there are these scenes that really play with this, these uncomfortable situations. And the big one is the beating at the near the end of the colloquies. That's sort of the climax of of the um of the series that you know it's it's an apple thief. A boy has just stolen some apples. And he's very publicly beaten and humiliated and shamed. And I think it's hard to read that and laugh at it in quite the same way that they might have at the time, you know, so beatings, jokes about being beaten and about the whip, the master's whip and so on. You find them everywhere throughout medieval and Renaissance school texts. It's just, you know, it's clearly a part of life. And it's clearly, it's not to say that people weren't critical of violence, um, used to discipline children, but uh, it was also taken as a given to a great extent. And it's something you kind of joked about. That's harder to, to stomach today. Um, but then even there, Alfred Bada does something kind of odd with it. So the kid who's beaten starts lamenting. He starts complaining. And it's it's a woe is me speech, but it's a very, very long woe is me speech. I mean, it's very overwrought, and, right? You know, if if we're taking the analogy of the of the sort of, you know, language textbook, it's not you know, can you tell me the way to the town hall? It's like, I have lost the way to the town hall and I'm going to be thrown into the gates of hell and nobody loves me. I mean, it's a very extreme lament, isn't it? 
Yeah, things like my bad luck pursues me everywhere. The anxiety of my mind disturbs me terribly and torments me. Every evil follows me wherever I flee or turn. I've never wronged anyone. I've caused no one any injury. And it goes like this, goes on like this for pages. Well, the joke is this is all from Isidore. Isidore, um, we, you know, famous in quotation marks for writing the etymologies, the great medieval encyclopedia. Isidore also of Seville, we should say. Sorry, Isidore of Seville. Um, my old bud, Isidore. Um, he um, he also wrote this work called The Synonymo, which is a, a weird sort of dialogue um, between a lamenting soul. And I think it's reason. I think it's reason. Weird dialogue in which a lamenting soul complains a lot. And it's called, essentially, the book is called Synonyms because this speaker complains in a lot of different ways, but it's all the same complaint. So I find that a really like strange moment because this boy is giving this operatic, over-the-top, absolutely ridiculous speech. He's actually just gotten a few lashes for stealing apples, but he gets this vocabulary which is completely exaggerated given the situation. And I think that if they later read Isidore, if they later encountered that text, which they might have, it was probably in the in the li- monastery's library, that they would be they would get a little bit of a flashback to this text, and they would kind of read Isidore with a smile as well, and it would basically he's kind of satirizing it before they've even mm. read it. And I suppose another way to help them memorize the Isidore, right? Because you know, yeah. memorization was such a key part of monastic education, and so probably part of the function of this text is is acting as these kind of memory cues, these memory prompts for yeah. a whole load of other texts and yeah. and other kinds of interaction. It's a key part of language yeah. learning too. You have to I'm wondering is that is that part about the apple thief is there I'm wondering if there's a reference there to isn't in Augustine's Confessions isn't there a description of him mm. stealing apples from or pears. pears? I thought it was the Maybe pears. pears. Yeah. Do you think there's a is there a resonance I, there? I think there are a few resonances. I think there are um a number of these of these little dialogues might have sounded different depending on the age of the readers, you know. So, you know, if you'd read Isidore, you would hear that differently than if you hadn't. Um, I think it comes right before a sermon at the end, spoken in the master's voice, in which the master talks about Christ and how he was beaten and reviled and treated very terribly, and you should all imitate him. And so there's a kind of ironic you know, parallel between the boy who's very publicly beaten for this little, you know, this apple theft and Christ, right? So I think I think there is something a little more sophisticated going on as well. And I should say, you know, I could imagine the scene traumatizing kids who had been beaten badly and were ashamed of it. I, I think that'd be very easy to imagine. But what if the master played the apple thief? And the boys played it beating the master because it's a long speech, right? And it would, I think it would have been a lot for a kid, a smaller child to memorize. But what if the master did that and did this long lament? That could have then been a kind of role reversal that was really fun in context. So again, because it's performed, there are a lot of possibilities to see it as quite a dark and terrifying set of dialogues in which everybody's arguing and at each other's throats and the kids are violent and the older monks are rapacious and so on. Um, and they get drunk a lot. Um, but if they did the parts in a certain, you know, 
depending on how they distributed the parts, um, it could have been absolutely hilarious, you know, to see their authority figures come down a notch. I suppose it's a little bit like the, um, from slightly later in the medieval period, but the tradition of boy bishops. So um, on the Feast of St. Nicholas, which is in early December, would be the the term of the boy bishop would begin. um, And this was in kind of abbeys and churches across the country where a boy from the local community, often I think a a chorister or or a kind of student at the cathedral school would be appointed the bishop and, and would then act genuinely as the bishop for about a month and would would lead services and um, take part in processions. And it's sort of, I think it's interesting for us to think about, although, as you say, there are these moments in this text that are that are troubling because they're describing the possible sexual abuse of of um, of young boys and we get a sense of this, you know, heavily stratified society or social structure and, you know, people in positions of authority and, you know, children being beaten. But equally, there are also these moments where we get a sense that perhaps because of the rigidity of that structure, medieval people were perhaps a little more interested in the inversions of those power structures and the the kind of playfulness that comes out of that. Absolutely. I think this is the big misreading of the Middle Ages to think that it was all top-down hierarchical authority and power. They were interested in authority, but they were interested in undermining it just as often. And that happens in this text. So there are a couple of places where the sort of an older teacherly figure gives long speeches made up of quotations from the Bible, especially from the wisdom books. And you would think the boys would then be enlightened by all of this wisdom. Invariably, what they say is, Master, what you've just said is wonderful, but maybe give us something a little more according to our abilities. So nice long speech, teacher, but we didn't understand the word of it. And I find it so fascinating that Bada basically created these speeches and gave his students, his pupils, the vocabulary with which to poke fun at someone like him. And I think that's so easy to mix if you miss if you're looking at it from the outside and thinking, oh God, here's another speech with wisdom from the Bible and about how, you know, spare not the rod or you spoil the child and 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 so on. But actually the point is you have to think about that stuff. He wanted his pupils to think about things and to decide what was good and bad. And he presented them with the bad as well. And also interestingly gave them the vocabulary and the words in order to challenge authority and you know in a in the previous episode we talked about the miller's tale and we talked about challenges to authority there um but it's kind of interesting the way both texts in different ways are exploring exactly that idea that it's sometimes it's those who are most powerless who actually can be given the power to challenge authority Absolutely. And sometimes when the older monks try to push alcohol on the kids or try to get them to give them kisses and so on, the boys say no. The boys often say no. So he, in a way, he's also teaching them to say no. So what do we take away from this text, Rina? Well, I think one thing is that medieval texts are not meant to be taken at face value. Um, Readers were meant to judge them. Even children were meant to actually exercise their judgment and think through situations and decide what was right or wrong. And of course, that the best way to teach language is through swear words. I think that's a very good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Irina. Thank you, Mary.
If you enjoy hearing about medieval literature, you can listen to our full 12-episode series, Medieval Beginnings, right now as part of the LRB's Close Readings podcast subscription, where you'll also find the whole first series of Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones, looking at classical literature from Homer to Horace, and The Long and Short with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry on 19th and 20th century literature from Tennyson to Alice Oswald. And, as well as all that, you'll be able to listen to the three new series running this year. There's On Satire with Claire Bucknell and Colin Burrow, which looks at satirical texts from Erasmus to Muriel Spark, Human Conditions with Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra, Brent Hayes Edwards and Adam Schatz, which looks at revolutionary texts of the 20th century, and a second series of Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones. You can listen to all of that with the Close Reading subscription. Sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or in other podcast apps. There are links for these below. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 